This is Chris McGregor with information on how you can help Discerning Hearts continue our mission during our summer appeal. It costs $90,000 per year to keep things going, and praise God, we are over halfway there. Any donation, any amount, helps us to continue our work. Please prayerfully consider helping us. It's been a blessed year so far, thanks to the generosity of so many. We are funded 100% by those touched by the work of Discerning Hearts. So, between now and August 15th, if you can help with a donation or with your prayers, it would be greatly appreciated. You can donate by clicking on the link found on the DiscerningHearts.com website or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Hello, Chris. It's good to be with you. I am looking forward to the conversations we're going to have. I'm sure it will take us a few episodes to discuss one of probably, they're all important mansions, but the fourth mansion, that we seem to cross over a th- threshold, don't we? That's right. This is probably the most critical thing of her work. These ideas that she has in this chapter are the ones that I think she is best developed. Uh, for those of you who've read the life of Teresa of Avila. She began to approach the problem of this transition from prayer in which we're primarily in control to prayer where God takes control. And she introduces that in her life. And then in the way of perfection, she develops it a little bit more. And here it's kind of like the flowering of a lifetime of uh, prayer and spirituality where she's able to probably provide some of the clearest light uh, in terms of this transition from one kind of prayer to another, any literature ever written. Mm, Wow. It is an area that you hear people that when they read the interior castle, that it can be confusing. Many people feel, I don't, with a lack of a better way of saying that they've achieved this point. And yet reality we may not have. Is that fair to say? Well, I think people look at the mansion sometimes as like, you know, a range of mountains that they're trying to climb. And so I made it to this peak. And so there's the next peak, you know, and sometimes they're on one peak and they're looking at another and in their imagination, they climbed the other one and they're really on earlier one, or they think they're much higher than they are and that kind of thing. Well, this is not the image she gives us. She gives us the image 
of a beautiful palace, a mansion or a complex with lots of dwelling places. And some of the dwelling places are closer to the center and some are more on the outskirts. But it's a huge, beautiful space for living. And one thing about anybody's house that we know is that there are rooms that you live in and you spend a lot of time in and other rooms that you kind of pass through. And so someone can be dwelling for the most of their life really in the periphery of their soul because they, for whatever reason, haven't made progress or haven't done the hard work of human maturity. That's possible. And then God calls them and they go deeper in the mansion. They might even come into this fourth mansion, this fourth dwelling place where God begins to act in a very special way. And it's maybe not where they dwell for the rest of their life. Maybe they're just there for a little bit, but they get a little bit of a taste. Other people, for whatever reason, in a very short time, they're on the outskirts. God calls them, and they go right through this mansion into the even more intimate dwelling places with God. Uh, Some of the rest of us wonder, astounded, how they could make so much progress so quickly when there are others who've devoted their whole life to trying to get get out of the first one or two dwelling places and can't seem to be, be making any progress. But Teresa Vavla says that normally people spend a lot of time in the first three mansions before God invites them into this fourth place of intimacy with the Lord. But she uses the word and she stresses that this is the normal course of events. It can be that somebody gets called a little bit earlier. And then there's also the phenomena that I've mentioned and that she describes elsewhere, where somebody can be kind of invited to deeper intimacy and then God sends them back to where they're, they're more comfortable dwelling, but he's put something in their soul that makes them long for more intimacy. And that was the whole purpose of granting them the favor of of more intimacy than they were really ready for is it makes them long for it so that they're not so satisfied where they are. I say all of this, the thing that I think you were talking about is this phenomena where somebody will uh, kind of assume that they've reached the highest levels of mysticism and it's all kind of a head trip in their head and in their imagination. They've imagined it to be so and they think it is so because they think they understand this part or that part of spiritual progress. But what we understand and what we imagine isn't quite the same thing as what is. And so a great deal of humility is called for. Whenever I read this, to tell you the truth, when I read about the first mansion, I see myself in the first mansion. When I read about the second mansion, I see myself in the second mansion. In the fourth mansion, my experience shifts because in the first three mansions, I so readily see myself there. In this fourth mansion, it's kind of like, well, I must have seen this or been part of this because I'm understanding too much of what she says. And if I've never experienced anything like this at all, uh, she herself tells me that I wouldn't. none of this would make sense to me. So I must have had some kind of experience of this. I wonder what it was. And I can never quite put my finger on it. And the same goes for the higher mansions. And all I can think of in, in my own case is that I think there are places that the Lord has allowed me to visit to make me desire more and other places where I kind of dwell and fight it out uh, more on a day-to-day basis 
and those are the, the earlier mansions. I hope that I grow up spiritually and learn to dwell in this fourth mansion and the higher mansions after this because what God does here is so beautiful and so needed in the church today. How's that for a short answer? I love it. I love it. Because ultimately, I mean, isn't the test that Teresa has guided us through, I mean, the story of her life, but she also talks about it in the way of perfection. And in the beginnings of the castle is that you kind of have the standard of humility. Humility is a real hallmark, isn't it? Yep. The One of the sure ways that you know that you're actually making progress in your spiritual life, in your life of prayer, is you can't see it yourself. The moment you see it yourself and start praising it uh, yourself, you you ruin it. You know, oh, look how humble I am. I mean, that, that kills it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But your spiritual director might point to the fruit, and you hear it with disbelief. You know, boy, I really see that the Lord has done a new work of humility in you. And you hear that, and your knee-jerk reaction is, I'm not so sure he really knows how prideful I really am. You know, And, mm-hmm. and if that's kind of the, the fallback disposition, that's normally healthy. But if, if our fallback disposition is, yes, I certainly have grown in uh, humility and <laughs> other wonderful virtues in my life. Uh, too bad other people aren't as humble as I am. You know, you know. If that's yeah. your, the fallback, then that we're in a lot of trouble because we're self-deceived and delusional. Mm. So, but humility, humility is kind of the gold standard. And normally we can't see it ourselves, and it ruins everything when we try to see it ourselves. Normally somebody else has to help us see that, that this fruit is being born in us, even if we don't quite believe them. Now, you mentioned something very important in in passing here, the importance of sharing your experiences, as you said, with a spiritual director, or if you don't have a spiritual director, at least good spiritual friends, and maybe a confessor. But it is important to share, isn't it? Yes, it's important to share for a variety of reasons. One of them is that it protects you against what I also just mentioned is self-delusion. Self-delusion is a huge problem in the spiritual life when you try to make progress because we want the Lord so bad in our life and our desires can be so intense, but precisely because of their intensity, if that intense desire is not submitted to the rule of faith, if it's not... um, if it's not surrendered to the completely to the providence of God, that desire can also occasion what you might call ego inflation, or the the presumption that just because I desire something, I I already attain it. It's true that in some sense, when you desire something, you do already have a connection with it, but you don't have that full possession that only God can give. And a good spiritual director, a good spiritual friend, a good confessor will help you kind of go, you know, you know, Lilith, you sound like you're a little bit full of yourself right now. Mm-hmm. And and you just need somebody, a voice of reality to say that to you. Or, you know, you're a little bit way too discouraged about what you call a lack of progress. Actually, God is doing a lot in your life right now. It, all these problems that you're seeing aren't the result of your prayer. Prayer is helping you finally see these things, and that's the first step to getting healed, is seeing them. And so in the spiritual life, oftentimes there's the appearance 
that we're going backwards or we're going forwards. And sometimes in that appearance of going forwards, we're actually going backwards. And other times in the, what we experience is going backwards is actually going forward. And only somebody else, our own vision of ourself is distorted. But somebody else gifted by the Holy Spirit can see the truth of what's going on. The role of a good spiritual director is to help you see the beautiful thing that God is doing in your heart and to help you discern the best counsel to cooperate with this beautiful thing that God is doing. Because God always does the most beautiful, exquisite, and wonderful things. But we can't respond to him on our own. God's created us to need to rely on each other. And the relationship between a soul and their spiritual friend or a soul and a spiritual director or a, um, a mentor of some kind or a confessor these relationships are critical for our growth and holiness. And we know this not as much here in the, the interior castle, but in her earlier work, The Life of Teresa of Avila, she spends a lot of time showing us how important spiritual friends are if we're going to make progress, how important good spiritual directors are, what a disaster a bad spiritual director can be. Mm -hmm. She describes all of that. She doesn't repeat that here. It, but this chapter kind of presumes that you're having those kind of conversations with somebody who's good, reliable, has their head screwed on straight, and also has studied a little bit of theology. What I like about this particular chapter on the fourth mansion is she fulfills a promise that she made, that she is going to describe for us the difference between sweetness in prayer and spiritual consolations. Now, we've heard a lot about spiritual consolations if we've done any kind of listening to St. Ignatius of Loyola, the contemporary of her time. She's going to talk to us about what the difference is between, again, sweetness in prayer and those spiritual consolations. Yes. It actually, you have a, a kind of a list of things that are going on in this chapter that are beautiful. So let me situate the distinction that you just made. Okay. She introduces the difference between kind of natural experiences in prayer and supernatural experiences in prayer. And that contextualizes spiritual sweetness and spiritual consolation, or sweetness in prayer and spiritual consolations. And then she distinguishes also the difference between thoughts and understanding. So it's kind of a fun thing when you're reading this to pay attention to the way she juxtaposes ideas. And she's trying to get us to go from what's natural sweetnesses in prayer to a supernatural consolation. She's trying to get us to go from what we can do in prayer to be open to what God can do in prayer. She's trying to get us to go from living by thoughts we have about God and dwelling more in the understanding that only God can give. This first chapter of the fourth mansion works with a variety of those oppositions that she's proposing. And she proposes them, again, the whole idea is to create in us a greater openness to this, what we will call mystical grace that only God can bring about in the soul. Mm. When we talk about those contrasts between the two, I guess it is easy for us to confuse some of those, isn't it? The, the things that arise from our own emotions, which God gives us, 
as opposed to those things that come from the deeper spiritual experience. Sure. In regards to the difference between sweetness in prayer and spiritual consolations, uh, sweetness in prayer is something that is brought about by our efforts and meditation. When we think about God, when we use our imagination to apply ourselves to the sacred scriptures, uh, ponder the life of Jesus and ourselves in relation to that life, we can use our imagination, we can use, we can think, we can come into insights, we can read the catechism of the, the Catholic Church and ponder the relationship of one point of doctrine with another point of doctrine. We can think about also in this meditation, we can think about our own memories. This is what Augustine does, but Teresa also recommends that we can ponder our lives and think about all the different memories we have in our lives, and we can think about those places where God's presence is especially evident to us, and other times when his presence seems so very hidden and distant and far, far away from us. These are things that we can do in our prayer, and oftentimes when we're pondering on our bed and we be still thinking about the times where God seems furthest away, asking ourselves the question, you know, I remember in the scriptures, God worked in all these fantastic, miraculous ways, but in my life right now, he seems to be absent. The reason why the psalmist will pray a prayer like that uh, or articulate a prayer like that is because these are all part of our lives. And what's beautiful in the Psalms is when the psalmist calls that to mind, what is he doing? He's searching for God in the places where he seems to be absent from his own experience. And by the end of the psalm, we find the psalmist finding God in those places where he seems. This is hard work, this kind of meditation on the presence of God in our lives, the presence of God in our memories. We sanctify our memories when we do this, and we sanctify our theological thinking and our imagination when we plunge our minds into the sacred scriptures. These are all worthwhile things, but we call this whole range of activity that I've just described for you, we call this meditation. And where meditation leads to is this kind of beautiful silence, this recollection of all our powers in the presence of God. And in that recollection in his presence, there are movements of such wonderful sweetness, even terrible sweetness, where finally we understand something about our lives and the way God's working in them that we didn't understand before. And there's a satisfaction in it that gives us joy. And however true that is, however much joy we might find in such a satisfaction, we also notice there's a kind of sorrow in it too, that somehow this thing that we've just arrived at through our meditation, through pondering our memories or pondering the life of the Lord or pondering the truths of our faith. Somehow this thing, this insight that we've just finally achieved, the satisfaction it gives, we realize it's not quite enough. It, it wakens our hearts, it stirs our hearts with something deep, but something we don't yet possess yet. And so those deep joys that we have in meditation are always tinged by a little bit of sorrow. That would be what Teresa of Avila is calling the sweetness of prayer. And that sweetness of prayer is something that she described, and it sounds ironic or paradoxical, but she talks about weeping over her sins. 
and weeping so hard that she gets a headache. She, she said the sweetness was so great. And the, the only thing that would stop me from weeping and experiencing the sweetness is that I'd finally get a headache because I cried so much over, over, you know, my sinfulness and God's goodness to me. And for those who've had such sweet feelings, what a beautiful, beautiful thing to be given. That is no small grace at all. And yet, I can say all of this and tell you that there's some, something more, something more profound than a sweetness. It's called a spiritual consolation. And the spiritual consolation is not the byproduct of your meditation, your work turning inwards and reflecting on your memories and searching for God's presence in them, nor is it reliant on your capacity to see the connection between the truths of our faith as beautiful and resplendent as those may be, that's your work aided by grace. God, only God can help you do that. Only God can help you sanctify your memory. Only God can help you use your imagination and prayer. But we speak about this as kind of a natural sweetness, a natural work, precisely because the way God is helping you is he's doing so by something called cooperating grace. Cooperating grace is a grace by which God cooperates with our activity. He lets us take the lead. He lets us slog it out and use all our natural powers under our own impetus, under our own initi initiative. And he rejoices that we, our devotions should be such that we would spend ourselves doing such a thing. It gives him great joy. But all of that hard work on our part, all the determination and perseverance that that calls for, as much delight as it gives him, none of it is but a shadow of what he is prepared to do in it. In fact, all of our work, all of our devotional exercises, spiritual exercises in which we employ ourselves are preparing us, making space in our hearts for him to do something even more beautiful and more fruitful. St. Teresa says that this more beautiful, more fruitful thing is not God cooperating with our natural powers. It's more God expanding our capacities. It's his work. He's taking the initiative. He produces something in us that we could never produce ourselves. And he can do so in a single moment, something that we spent years and years and years on in meditation, pondering about. He produces in our souls in a single instant, in an explosion of grace that changes everything inside us. One moment of this spiritual consolation is better than a thousand a billion sweetnesses in prayer. And what is more, whereas that sweetness in prayer is tinged by a little bit of sorrow, this spiritual consolation, there is no sorrow in it because we have a true, at least for a moment, a true possession of him, a possession that far surpasses the sweetness that we had by our meditation. This is what we call mystical contemplation, and it begins to dawn. If in meditation... It was to bring me into a place of recollected silence where I'm aware of the presence of God and so much so that I feel the sweetness of that presence and it, and it pierces me to the heart, but it's also tinged with the idea that I don't yet possess him perfectly. In this fourth mansion, this spiritual consolation, a more perfect possession of him is given to me, a more perfect joy that nothing in this world can ever take away. 
and this joy purifies and enlarges my soul all at once. And in doing this, something great is being born in me, something so wonderful that it transforms my interior life. It transforms my psychology. So, And she describes this more towards the end, so that rather than being driven so much by my thoughts and prayers, all of a sudden what is given me is an understanding that is utterly surpassing, an understanding of God and an understanding of myself, a, a judgment about who I am and a judgment about who God is that allows me to anticipate what he longs for me to know from all eternity, this vision of him in peace. In this fourth mansion, we begin the transition into this new kind of prayer, the most fruitful, the most powerful, the most wonderful prayer in the life of the church. It begins here. And I'm of the conviction that this fourth mansion is something that most people who are faithful to the Lord, who are devout, who go to confession and try to be devout to the living God, God normally at least lets them taste this consolation at some point in their lives. Uh, oftentimes, it can be close to death because for whatever reason, somebody had trouble letting go of certain things until the suffering that comes close to death. But normally for a devout soul that has given himself completely over to the Lord, the Lord does not withhold this supernatural consolation that he yearns to give us. Hmm. Wow. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. 
If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. She'll say in the first chapter of the fourth mansion, I think it's in paragraph seven, not to think much as to love much. Can we call it the key, the key to this? She repeats that in all of her writings, in the foundations, in the way of perfection and the life. That's a very uh, vital insight in the specific context. Uh, in this chapter, meditation and contemplation kind of are a little bit mixed. And so she talks about being in the middle of a meditation, and all of a sudden this other kind of prayer comes. And what do you do when this other kind of prayer comes? Well, in other times when you're doing your meditation and something kind of distracts you, you try to you try to ignore the distraction and, and stick with the course. This requires perseverance and determination. It's an exercise of, of your devotion. And so when you're thinking about the Annunciation and the Rosary, and all of a sudden you find yourself starting to make a laundry list of uh, the things you want to buy at the grocery store that day, you renounce that. You say, right now is not the time to develop my grocery list. Right now I'm thinking about the Annunciation. And that's normally a good thing to do. But what about when this, when God begins to operate in a new way, when he begins to give yourself in a new way? Do you go, okay, God, please stop right now because I'm trying to finish my meditation on the Annunciation. Well, I don't have time for this. That wouldn't be a very loving thing. It would be like our spouse uh, coming to us and wanting a kiss and saying, I can't kiss you right now because I've got to finish washing the dishes or doing this other thing for you because, you know, uh, this is distracting me from the good, the great important work that I'm trying to do to show you my devotion. And no, you give your spouse a kiss. Well, in the same way, God comes to us in this prayer and he's showing us a great affection, a great desire for us and he's asking us to surrender even our efforts at meditation into his love, to do the most loving thing. So it's not the feats of our imagination, not the feats of what we're able to produce in our meditation or any other spiritual industry we under, undergo, even our memories. Completing those feats is not what God cares about. What God cares about is the love with which we do it. And if we do those things with love, whether or not we achieve great insight or not, uh, whether or not we enter into some sweet consolation or not, uh, if we do these things with love, then we're kind of open that when, so that when he begins to work in a new way, rather than having to hang on to our meditation and complete it, we're able to respond to this new thing he, he does. It's, it's this, um, I don't know really quite how to describe it, but it's while you're praying the Annunciation, you might be thinking a very beautiful thing about how uh, the angel from all eternity and God's heart was sent to Mary. And now in space and time, this meeting finally happens. 
and the angel speaks a word that angel was created to speak from before the foundation of the world and it was spoken to this virgin you're thinking about the the incredible intensity of that moment and all of a sudden quite apart from all the theological insight and beautiful imagery you might have a thousand different annunciation scenes might be flowing through your imagination all at once all of a sudden it stops because god draws you into this deeper kind of silence you feel the pull of it and the temptation because the other sweetness is is sweet and it is the insights are beautiful insight the temptation is to want to hold on to that beautiful insight that you're just about to get at and god say no i don't want you to have fruition in that let go of that find fruition in me find fruition i am the word made flesh and i speak to you now be silent before my majesty and then such meaning when you surrender to it explodes in your soul there is no words to describe what he unfolds there but it's so much more rich and beautiful if you try to cling to what you were trying to achieve by your own industry when you surrender to the loving movement of the word who unfolds himself in the silence of your heart this blessed silence this is the beginning of this infused contemplation or mystical contemplation a contemplation so subtle that you scarcely are aware that it's begun when it has already seized your soul and so fruitful that you can't possibly recognize the fruits yourself you're baptized in it somebody else needs to help you see what god has just achieved in you this is where she's trying to give us and that and what allows you to surrender to that infusion of love which has already begun in this fourth mansion it's love the infusion of love this inflow of love happens because you've made space in your heart by love it's not your ideas it's not your imagination it's not your intuition it's not your self-generated feelings that allow you to be open to this infusion of love it's the decision of your will and love it's the decision to be open to god's will in your life even when it comes right in the midst of your meditation he never comes conveniently he never comes when you want him to the call of love is never convenient other if it was it wouldn't really be love the call of love though is astonishing and surprising and it's never quite what we think it's going to be and it's never ever the same way twice and again just to go over ground we've already spoken of but just to make sure it's clear this kind of spiritual consolation is teresa's use of the term and it may look different again for those who have heard saint ignatius's use of the term of a spiritual consolation correct from way you've described it it is different for both is it not anthony yeah for ignatius when he's using the term consolation i think he means both what she's calling sweetness and prayer and the spiritual consolation he means them both he's describing this 
it depends on uh, which set of rules you're looking at and that kind of thing. But he's describing this in terms of how do you know what spirit you're under right now and whether whether you should go with that spirit or not. He's providing descriptions and some considerations that allow us to make good decisions in cooperating with God. Teresa, she has the benefit of having known St. Ignatius's doctrine a, a little bit longer than he has, and she also has the benefit of having been able to invest herself in contemplation for a longer period of time. At a certain stage of the game, St. Ignatius's life of devotion turned from more contemplative engagements with the Lord to more apostolic fruitfulness for the church. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a very beautiful thing that he did. Teresa of Avila is a contemplative nun who's dedicated her whole life to the pursuit of this kind of wisdom. And so she's going to bring some specificity to some of her terminology that maybe St. Ignatius didn't need, especially when he's directing souls through the exercises. She's trying to lead souls into this mystical union with God that begins in this fourth mansion. He's trying to get souls who maybe are less mature, maybe more mature, maybe less mature. He's trying to provide some general principles that can apply to souls depending on the kinds of struggles they're dealing with. And so, so there are complementary ways. So when you see spiritual consolation here, this is a little bit different than St. Ignatius. I, there's more to be said about this point and investigated, but it's suffice to say there are differences. She's not as worried about discerning the spiritual consolation. There's no discerning it. It's given you. And it's up to your spiritual director to help you discern it. She's trying to help a soul see the differences from when God cooperates with our activity, that cooperative grace that we talk to, and when God operates in our activity, this mystical contemplation that begins in this fourth mansion. And as we bring you know to a close the uh, chapter one of this particular mansion, it seems to me as though there that the fruits of this is peace, of this particular type of spiritual consolation that she speaks of. There seems to be a, a just a uh, overshadowing of quite a lovely peace that af affects the soul. Is that correct, Anthony? Well, this has to do with the reordering uh, of things, and there's peace, but it's a peculiar kind of peace because she, she says that this peace can include battles with spirits, that, that sometimes God allows spirits to come into this fourth mansion that are very evil and very, very awful things. And he does this, he does this because it's good for us. <laughs> it helps us go deeper. In the earlier stages of the spiritual life, spirit, uh, allowing the evil one to, uh, you know, living with the evil one and all those influences is really bad for our life of prayer. And we need to do everything we can to get away from them. And, but here, God sometimes allows an evil spirit of some kind or another to creep in there. And it's because he wants us to fight the thing. Because when we fight the thing, we grow stronger. He, he also says, and, and this is true too, 
this peace that we have in this at this stage is not perpetual absorption in God. She sees that as very dangerous, and I've seen people like this too. They they get a little taste of prayer, and so they start walking around like they're floating off the ground and always absorbed in God with this kind of weird smile on their face and their eyes look like they're half asleep and they're you know almost like they're comatose or something. Mm-hmm. Teresa Vavila was not comatose. She was grounded in reality and she was very aware of what was going on and she was especially aware of the people that God entrusted to her. And so we're not supposed to be perpetually absorbed. And so God will sometimes send a little spirit to snap us out of it and get us grounded back in reality, help us join the fray. And so whatever this peace is, this peace doesn't mean that we don't fight, we don't struggle. There is a struggle. There is a fight. It also doesn't mean that we don't have a gazillion different thoughts exploding in our mind at, at one time. She says, as I write this, the noises in my head are so loud that I am beginning to wonder what is going on in it. And I said this at the outset. They have been making it almost impossible for me to obey those who have commanded me to write. My head sounds just as if it were full of brimming waters, and then as if all the water in those rivers came suddenly rushing downward. A host of little birds seemed to be whistling, not in the ears, but in the upper part of the head, where the higher part of the soul is said to be. And I've held this view for a long time, for the spirit seems to move upward with great velocity." So this piece also doesn't mean that you stop having mental activity. In fact, just the opposite. You're going to have an explosion of mental activity, more activity than you ever had before, more distraction than you ever had before, more insight than you ever had before. A thousand thoughts are going to brim over all at once because your mind, your intellect knows that we've been touched, knows that something's changed in it and doesn't know what to do. So it explodes forth in all this thought. The peace doesn't mean then an absence of thought, an absence of struggle, or anything like this. What the peace is, is that in the face of that explosion, that brimming over of all this new thought, and in the face of great spiritual battles that will need to be ours as we make progress in prayer, in the face of all that, there is a peace given to us that nothing in this world can take away. And it's not because those things are the less in us. No, they are the more. It's because we have him, and when we have him, we can bear all things by the strength he gives us. That's what this prayer actually enables you to engage the fray all the more. It doesn't remove you from the battles of this life or the difficulties or trials or hardships. It allows all those things to become moments of love that give glory to God, and it allows us to do it with a peace that nothing, no power in heaven, no power in hell, no power on this earth can take away. Sounds a lot like trust. (laughs) Amen. It is. It is. Good. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.